This is Nomina's Mental Health Mavens, where each week we bring you guests from the mental health, addictions, and holistic care community to talk about different issues and treatment modalities. Now, guest opinions are their own, and some content might be triggering. But at Nomina, we work with complex and treatment-resistant mental health and addictions, so we know the importance of making exceptional mental health accessible to everyone. And with that, today's guests are Dan and Lisa Kalko, who are the perfect guests to talk about relationships and early recovery. Both Dan and Lisa are registered sex therapists, relationship counselors, and the clinical directors at Nomina, where we specialize in addictions and mental health treatment. And they're also married. So let's welcome Dan and Lisa to talk about dating and early recovery. fantastic to have both of you here together. I know we've done a lot of videos separately, but this is the perfect one to have both of you here to talk about relationships in early recovery, because I know we always say don't do it, but perhaps you can give us some of the reasons why. So Lisa, do you want to kick it off? Absolutely. You know, it's funny because when we first got together, you know, we had both come out of our own respective circumstances and we had had to have this period of mourning and kind of independence prior to really coming together as a couple. And so it's funny that now we're both here discussing these types of things together. But a lot of reasons go into why it's best to wait when you're in early recovery and specifically, you know, early recovery and addiction, having relationships can become quite challenging. And I think most recovery programs all endorse the same thing, which is to not do it. It's not because we're trying to be assholes or because we really don't want you to have love or to have, you know, connection. Because that is, again, one of the foremost things we do recommend is healthy connections, healthy independent connections or interdependent connections, rather. But why we look at relationships in early recovery as being a struggle is because our brain fuses with what we call a trauma bond. So in that regard, we're already so volatile, we're already so vulnerable. And sometimes, you know, our pain responses just cause us to want to fuse with something that makes us feel better. And so we can gravitate towards unhealthy relationships. It can sometimes mirror or mimic the chaos that we experienced in addiction. It can sometimes be a way of which we just feel better. We feel more connected. We feel valued. We feel loved. We feel appreciated. And the early euphoria that comes from early relationships, that romantic attraction, that engagement, that lust that we have in those first three months totally floods our brain with all kinds of great responses or great chemicals. And it gravitates us towards it but we're not actually able to show up as our strongest and healthiest self. So that can become a problem in and of its own. Yeah. I know for myself personally, that when I went into early recovery young, that when I was suggested of me, I almost, it felt like the blood drained out of me and I I could feel my sweat break out. And it's like, what, really? I can't date for a year? And it was horrifying because I just felt like I needed something something to, to like, it was too much to be alone to go through it. Yeah. And that's such a common response. It's like, that's something I just want to feel. And like I said, it can feel so counterintuitive when we're like healthy connections, the addict, the opposite of addiction is connection, but don't have these connections because these connections are not the connections you want. It's about trying to find that state of balance in early recovery. 
Well, yeah, because I work with a, a lot of new girls. I'm very open about my own circumstance. And I'm amazed by how some are totally okay with the fact that they're not going to date, they want to work on them. And then there's the others that are like me when I was brand new that can't. So so why would that be? Why do some people struggle with it? And like Lisa introduced, I think it's very important to identify that people crave that connection. And we tell them, like she said, they tell them connection is the thing that will keep you insulated from your cravings. They're going to help you get through cravings. They're going to help you get through those things that want to pull you back into addiction. And that's true. It's just the mechanisms for creating intimate relationships are a little bit different than those that are supportive in terms of, like you would know in the AA fellowship, for example. Those relationships are different than intimate relationships. And when we look at what's going on on a neurobiological level, we're looking at the love hormones being uh, activated, which often flood our brain with those feel-good chemicals, the pr primarily dopamine, which mimics what we were feeling in, in our addictions or what was being generated during the addiction. And that's the difference between the two when we say we want one type of connection but not the other, is we're looking for that kind of that brotherly affection, that brotherly love versus that intimate love. And that's the kind of, that's the difference between the two. I've heard that expression, you need to learn how to love yourself first then love your your core your cohorts and then you can move out into an intimate relationship yeah. and that, and that's really important as well from that neurobiological level because when anyone goes through recovery addiction recovery or any kind of mental health recovery their brain is physically changing so a neuroplasticity is a term that's thrown out around a lot but what we're doing is we're actually creating new mental pathways for our brain to function and it's very difficult for us to know ourselves until we have a period, a long period in that new state where those become the norm. Those become the, the standard neural pathways that fire regularly, as opposed to the ones that were generated previously during the addiction cycle. And that's why when we say you have to learn or you have to learn to know yourself, you're literally learning to know yourself again because there's a new self that's been generated, at least from a neurobiological perspective. And how can you present a legitimate version of self to another person if you don't know who that is? And it's still evolving. It does evolve. That prefrontal cortex takes a while to stabilize. And that's why we say that year, that tends to be the 12 months, is what is generally accepted and what you've probably heard and what lots of people have heard, is you want to wait a year. And that's roughly about the time it takes for you to know who you are. Even that year mark, when we look at that specifically, it becomes so foundational. I mean, and I tell my clients this all the time, you know, the 12-step program, for example, and not that this is necessarily rooted in a 12-step model, but the 12-step program has been enduring for a reason. And it's because a lot of it was based in science and evidence before it was actually founded in science and evidence and just from observation of human behavior. And so we know now as science is coming to formulate it into more specific scientific language, that first three months, that first three months is that lust period that many people experience, which is the same kind of euphoric high where so many people will struggle in their early addiction phase. And then similarly going through that, you know, I would say it's like the first 24 hours, the first seven days, the first 30 days, 60, 90, then we go into six months, you know, nine months and a year. 
And then after that 18 months, it levels off. But that's why you get the chips. That's why you get the rewards. That's why you get the positive reinforcement markers to say what you're doing is hard. It's the exact same when we're looking at relationships because that first year is so critical and so many people relapse in that first year. So it makes sense that they're going to be still forming those new neural pathways. They need to get to know how do they show up to that challenge? How do they show up as they're experiencing that adversity? And wanting to feel confident in yourself so that when you meet your intimate partner, you're ready to actually be this newly emerged person rather than the person who's going to be struggling in those post-acute withdrawal phases, still trying to figure it out when you're hanging on to the person like a life raft and they're like, oh, backing away and your relationship never stood a chance. So it's not fair to you or your intimate partner because you're not really able to assess, does your relationship actually have feet? Does it actually have a solid foundation of which it can grow from? So that's again where, you know, dare I say, There is a lot to be said in those, you know, 12-step programs or those early recovery programs that have been touting this for a long time because there is evidence to support that neurobiologically, as Daniel said, you know, there is functional pieces that are intended in that to really help you be your best self in your new relationship. So it's not that we don't want you to have healthy, happy, fulfilling, engaging, emotional, intimate connections. We want you to be able to show up as your best self to have those. Otherwise, it's just disappointing because you're like, why does everybody reject me? Why does everybody leave? Well, and they can be quite toxic as well because you just, there's not the skills there. Now, uh, we talked a little bit off camera about trading one addiction for another, like the sex and love addiction. So I want to talk about that, but I also want to give some really tangible tips to for a girl like me who, when I came in, I had no idea, how do I do this? How do I be alone? How do I do it without a relationship? You know, and so I will speak to that specifically because what we see is so many people, especially, you know, when we're looking at personality features and romantic relationships, you know, substance use disorder is about 83% comorbid with borderline personality disorder, which is primary characteristic is those intense romantic attachments and perceived feelings of rejection. So when we see this connection with these intimate relationships that are forming, especially in young women, we find that many women are the ones primarily diagnosed with borderline personality and comorbid substance use. That leaves me wondering why. And of course, being the data miner I am, I start to look down the deep rabbit hole and I discover that so much of it is the messaging we receive as women. Have that intimate partner. We need that safety and protection. Our value worth is assessed by what kind of partner we're going to have. How are we going to show up? How are we going to be loved? How are we going to be taken care of? How do we use our sexual currency in a way to validate ourselves? Having that feminine energy, all of these things, not to mention the process even internally within us. Because we as women are also sexual beings. We have sexual urges, innate needs, things like that. But none of which necessarily need to be satiated by physical sex. Oftentimes, it's the deeper desire for emotional bonding, connection, you know, safety, security, those types of things. So how do we start to find that within ourselves? We literally need to just go out and start doing it on our own. There is such a sense of power and autonomy and control that comes from that, again, that adage of, When you let go of control, you can control the things you can. What is in my scope to control? What are the things that I can actually do for me? So when we met, I was completely independent, working, had my own house. I didn't need another human. I was in a space I could invite another human to complement my life. That was a big difference. 
And so it becomes something of what do we need to do to prepare ourselves for romantic relationships? We need to become independent, self-sufficient, capable, and confident that we can do it on our own. And then we will know that we are in a space that we are ready to invite somebody to share in what we've built. That is super powerful. Yeah. I surrounded myself by amazing, strong women that were my role models and just powered through. And I knew that I just couldn't keep doing what I was doing and um, went on and yeah, met the love of my life. (laughs) (laughs) I love a good idea. Much later. I was very sober then. (laughs) Right. But that's the thing. It's like when we wait for the right person. And sometimes you don't always know it's the right person because, you know, there is no like Mr. Right or Mr. Perfect or Mrs. Right or Mrs. Perfect. It's the person who compliments you, challenges you to be your best self, to do the hard work. And that's the other part is that relationships in recovery are hard work. We are constantly navigating our imperfect selves with another imperfect person trying to figure out, do our values align enough for us to build a successful future together? Well, we've talked a lot about strong, powerful women. What about from a man's perspective, Dan? Yeah, for sure. So it's like it's a very similar thing. Is that that human desire for connection is is kind of genderless. People want to connect with each other, and for a man, it's a little bit different. Um, but there is still a lot of that trauma bonding, like Lisa said, that goes on where people are trying to reformulate relationships or they're trying to fall into patterns that are comfortable for them. And I often tell my clients that when they identify things that are difficult for them, for example, like they enter relationships, like for example, abusive relationships or toxic relationships, that's not pleasant, but it is comfortable for the the neurobiol the neuropathic, the, the brain is comfortable in that because it knows this is what it was like growing up. This is what it was like when I was a young adult or a teenager. This is, I know how to survive through this because I clearly have to this point. And so that subconscious seeks out that comfort in those patterns. And men are not immune from that in any, in the same way that women are. Um, it's just men tend to be seen in our society as more aggressive in terms of seeking relationships or, or seeking those intimate relationships, right? Even the way that we've developed the, uh, the proposal in our society, the man asks the woman in a public place to marry him. It becomes so that pressure is is a little bit skewed. Well, I think you could also speak to the kind of masculinity and the constructs of masculinity, because I know we've talked at great length about how even in early recovery, we see so many men adopting these very toxic masculine perspectives Mm -hmm. and just how they're expected to show up and how disingenuous that must feel for them as well. For sure. And that's a really good point, Lisa. It's that, there are certain expectations placed on people in our society, men and women, um, from society. And for for men, there is that toxic masculinity that goes, you should be strong or you shall be strong. You shall have the pretty girl on your arm. You shall have all of these things, which aren't always in line with somebody's core values. And that's where we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot as a society where we say, okay, great, now you're no longer... Uh, addicted to drugs or 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 drinking alcohol all the time or whatever it was your substance of choice, but now all of a sudden you have these other roles that you now have to fill in, uh, and it could be really disingenuous, and that becomes very hard for a man to go. Well, maybe I want to be a little bit more passive in my relationship. Maybe 
there's a certain type of equity that I want in my relationship that's not supported in our popular culture and in our in our society. So that can be very difficult for men uh, as well. And even seeing that come across with, as we again hear in a lot of recovery spaces, the ego, the ego in recovery and how we feel more safe and secure when we have a relationship, because it's like an external validator of like, oh, okay, I'm still attractive. I've still got it. I'm still, but in fact, maybe we don't, maybe we're not. And we're actually seeing a lot more people place one addiction for another where, you know, we'll see them go from say primary substance use uh, to something more like a sex and love addictive behavior where they now start sexually acting out or they start using that sex as a currency or that intimate bonding is a currency. And so we're looking at that from the same neurobiology as say of the reward cycle with regards to any sort of process addiction, very similar in, you know, sex and love romantic engagements, which, you know, we recognize that, you know, within the DSM-5 criteria, sex and love addictive behavior is not considered to be an addiction in this standard addiction stream. However, it is something that's gaining a lot of emergence and a lot of, you know, conversation because it does follow very similar neurobiological pathways. It is something that we know when you have that reward response from, you know, the emotional romantic connection is the exact same region of your brain that lights up as if you're doing cocaine. So it's okay to be addicted to a cocaine and we have functional evidence to support that. But, you know, one of the reasons we don't want to necessarily, you know, the DSM is quite hesitant around normalizing sex addiction is because we don't want to take away from healthy individual sexual relationships. And there is a range of sexual relationships. Some people can be hypersexual. Some people can be asexual and everything in between. But when it becomes destructive, when it becomes harmful, when it becomes something that you're using, and again, that same ego-based way, that's when we see it as kind of almost becoming a replacement addiction. And we have seen people sabotage healthy recovery programs based on the desire to attract and have that romantic, euphoric connection because they just want to feel something. And that something could be quite harmful and really destabilizing to the recovery process. So it's, again, becomes a new drug of choice. They're connected, they're bonding, that euphoria, that excitement that they feel. And we don't fault our humans for wanting to feel that, but it's how do we learn to manage our own internal states? How do we learn to sit with ourselves? And as we talked about earlier, what are those tips? You know, it's again, checking in with ourselves. You know, what am I doing this for? Is this healthy for me? Do I know myself? Giving that and trusting those people around us, you know, the sponsor is a great example, a trusted friend, you know, your family system, whoever it is, is this a healthy relation for, relationship for me right now? It's not to say the person's not amazing. Is it healthy for me right now? Mm. You know, I share way too much on this channel, but I remember the time when um, I was sitting in, I was sitting in a, in a meeting and I was looking for this girl. She was new and I wanted to make sure she was back. And as I'm leaving the meeting, I started crying because I realized I was looking for a girl. I wasn't looking around at all the boys. (laughs) (laughs) I knew that a change was starting to take place and that it was working. And it feels, I'm so glad that I took that time and that I worked on me and I got solid with me and I grew to love me. And then you're right. I could felt like I could bring something to a relationship that I wasn't seeking to get something out of a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And then I demanded a man who had that same thing that he was very secure and, and a, and a good man. I had no tolerance for anything that was less than healthy. 
A really good but scary question to ask oneself is, who am I and what do I want? And really being able to create an inventory when you're in that early recovery phase of building up self is, who am I? How do I define myself? And what do I want? Because if you can't answer those questions, you're not going to be able to find an intimate partner that's going to be able to help fulfill those things of who you are and what you want. And that's what a healthy relationship is, is two people working together towards common goals. It can be individual goals as well within a relationship, but ultimately the, the couple or the relationship, however it's defined, should be moving towards something together. And if you're not on that same page and you're going in different directions, well, it's hard for the relationship to stay together. If you're kind of working towards the same direction, that that's great, right? And you can support each other. But again, it all stems back to who are you and what do you want? Mm-hmm. And if you can't answer that question, then you got to go back to the drawing board. Uh, and there's lots of techniques. There's lots of people that can help you, counselors, therapists, friends, family, that can help you answer that question. But only you can answer that question ultimately for yourself. Uh, and when you can answer that question, now you can go, okay, well, I'm going to surround myself with people who share those interests. And and as you know, when you surround yourself with with people that have shared interests, the chances of finding an intimate partner that also shares those interests becomes way higher. And now you've maybe found someone who can go along that journey with you. I also want to acknowledge, and I think it really speaks to what you're sharing, Joanne, is that when we start to make a shift away from our old patterns or old people, it's scary because we're putting ourselves out there in this vulnerable state, trusting that we're going to attract people to us who share our common values or who share our parallel journeys. And that's really, really difficult when we're mourning the loss because there's a lot of grief and loss that comes from leaving an addiction behind. We're leaving behind our friends, our community, our connections, you know, even seeing even family. you know, yeah, families yeah. sometimes and, and taking that step forward. Like sometimes our families don't understand why do you go to AA all the time? Where are you finding that? You know, what is this about? It's like, it's a secret space. It's a, you know, an, oh, it's a cult. For some it is, you know, for others it's not. For others it's a deep, you know, spiritual place of healing where they find their recovery program. And I always say abstinence is different than recovery. And in that regard, you know, whatever works for the individuals, but ultimately it is about finding that within ourselves to say, when we know who we are, as Daniel was saying, we will start to attract people who want to be gravitated towards us because of what we have to offer. And other people will naturally fall by the wayside. And that's where making those changes in early recovery, learning those parts about ourselves in early recovery, it takes time. That's that year mark. That's that place of, again, you know, to go back to that, it's not because it's some random arbitrary number. It really is that first year of exploring yourself, getting to know who you are. So much change happens in that first year. And it's not like at 364 days, you're ready. On the 365th day, you know, you're totally emerged. Sometimes that can be 380 days. Sometimes that can be 420 days. It's just about getting to know you and what you have to offer. And it should be fun. Really, you're getting to know yourself and you give, you have license to go, do I like skydiving? No, really, that terrified me and I don't like skydiving, <laughs> True. right? Or do I like uh, this type of cuisine now that I've got my, ten- my senses back, my taste buds are back, they're, they're different, right? The brain is processing information in a different way. People have noticed all sorts of changes in their life. So this should be really like almost like a rebirth and that is really exciting when you have that cognitive capacity to go, do I enjoy this or do I not enjoy this? And then you can attract, like Lisa said, those people 
that also enjoy the things that you do. You find you might find your your partner on a skydiving trip because you really love skydiving. Who knows? But you're not looking for the partner when you're skydiving. You're just trying to experience yourself and experience life. And that's where that kind of incidental finding of people is where you find the the people that fulfill you. The goal is not to find a person. And I do, I also wanted to mention that we kind of define ourselves in our relationships. And many cultures do this, right? Oh, you're 20, you haven't found a partner yet. Oh, you're 30, you haven't found a partner yet. Oh, you're 40, you haven't found a partner yet. Those are those social societal expectations that kind of force us down a path that may not be genuine to ourselves. And that's really hard to, to dig in against that, especially if you have a very strong culture that says, thou shalt be married with kids by 25. And, and that's hard, where sometimes you got to put you first. And like Lisa said, sometimes that means leaving certain people behind. And that can be really scary. Yeah. One thing I did want to highlight as you were talking, because, you know, we just like ping off of each other's great <laughs> ideas all the time, which is another sign of a developed relationship. But that idea of the delayed gratification. So when we defer and we're not giving into the urges or the cravings or those kinds of parts of us, because they're going to happen. We're going to have those urges and cravings. But when we have that delayed gratification, the reward feels so much more profound. And that's where it's, again, when we take that time and we delay getting into those early relationships, especially in early recovery, we start to have that appreciation for what do I actually want? Who am I as a person? And we appreciate the pain that it's taken us to go through this, that we're no longer willing to accept somebody's bullshit. You know, it really does, you know, help us. I think you were saying that beautifully, Joanne, and that when we take that time and we get to know ourselves, we're not going to be bonding in that same trauma bond. We're not going to be just buying into, oh, look, he showered me with pretty flowers and chocolates, and I don't even like chocolate. It's the, I'm going to tell this person what I actually want, what I actually value, what I actually, what my love languages are, and helping them to be an active participant in my life, which is so much more rewarding and gratifying and can really help us have that satiating experience rather than that superficial experience. I have yet to meet a person who can read minds. Uh, and but it also is important that we advocate for what we want right no person is a mind reader and if one person likes something and the other person is expecting the other person to just figure it out or just to like predictively somehow pull it out of the ether that's an unrealistic expectation and so that's where again as we've talked in the past communication becomes very very important once you know who you are Once you know who the other person is, you can communicate openly and honestly without fear of reprisal or judgment to ask for the things that you really want. Yep. And that's what I was going to say. That was the best thing that happened for me was the ability to ask for what I need. And then if that person is not capable of it, to say, okay, you're not the best person for me and actually walk away. It was, I'm still amazed to this day that the shift that happens when you actually do the work. How liberating that must be, though, right? To like, not only does it free you up from that state of rejection, it frees them up from that state of rejection because it's that clear and honest communication of it's not that you're a bad person, it's that we're not great people together. And so rather than us wasting time, effort, and energy going through this, you know, process of rejection, we can just simply honor that we are not, you know, two parts that would fit together nicely and allow that to be evolving into something different. And the longer you wait to know yourself, the more easy that is, or more clearly that is defined. Yeah. There is one point I do just want to go back to Joanne, and you can kind of splice this in wherever you'd like, but I think it's such a great acknowledgement of, as you're describing, 
you know, being in the room and finding yourself looking for the other woman. You know, when we're looking at relationships and early recovery, and specifically even again, going back to those 12-step models where, you know, the whole idea of 13-stepping, it's not just about opposite sex attraction. Because we know even working in inpatient, there are lots of times where people will trauma bond. And all of a sudden, people who didn't even realize that they may be sexually attracted or intimately attracted to a same-sex person find themselves attracted to same-sex people through various forms of intimate bonds. It's, again, because of that craving and that connection that can happen. But really, what I heard you identifying is when you found somebody who had something to offer that attracted you, that was exciting, that you wanted to connect with, that wasn't necessarily fused in sexual obligation or sexual attraction or sexual romantic engagement, where you're like, oh, I want to be fusing with this person in an intimate sexual way. It's about being open with yourself enough to know that when you're able to find somebody who has something that is attractive to you, not just sexually attractive, but attractive in that magnetizing way of like, wow, they have a really profound story. They have a really profound share. I love what they're sharing, regardless of their sex characteristics or my own intimate sexual attraction. That is when we start to realize that we're gravitating towards strong and healthy self. It's again, one of those important markers of knowing how are we connecting with other people? What are we attracting and putting out there? So that's where even when Daniel and I met, and we will often share with people, we didn't even like each other when we first met. So there was no like immediate sexual chemistry pull in that like vein of, you know, oh, I want to be with him. In fact, our bond came from that intellectual cerebral place of connection and saying, wow, I found somebody who I could really have deep, intimate, meaningful conversations with. I found somebody who was a really profound, you know, person who I really jived with on, you know, so many different spiritual, emotional ways that created a bond that far exceeded any of that early euphoric kind of pheromonal attraction. When we're looking at that in early recovery, that takes time. It takes time to really develop that self-assurance and that confidence and even just knowing that it's not about sex characteristics. So whether you be, you know, somebody who is attracted to the same sex or other sex or otherwise or in between, it's about knowing that we're really just checking in with ourselves and being honest with our intentions and our motivations and the people we're bonding with. And being honest with them, what are we getting from the relationship? Is it reciprocal? Are we okay with the fact that we may take more than they have to give? And, you know, just being really transparent with that, that radical transparency that we love to teach all of our guests. It's like such an important part. Yeah. The best advice I ever got was stay out of my head and stop daydreaming about the person because all of the stuff that I'm going to create about how wonderful and magical it's going to be is a lie. Just sit back and go with it and be an objective observer and stop daydreaming. It changed my life. (laughs) Completely. And that's where we can start to take it out of our list of specific, like needs to have a 6K salary, needs to drive, you know, a Maserati, needs to have, you know, X, Y, Z. And it turns it more into, you know, how do you define good hearted? How do you define, you know, uh, kindness? How do you define, you know, worldly? you know, taking these more value-based ideas and starting to reflect internally with how do I want somebody to show up as kind-hearted? How do I want somebody to show up as interesting? How do I want intellectual? Well, how do I define intellectual? Because some of the most brilliant people I've met, you know, are living on the streets and don't have any sort of education. And they have the most amazingly sophisticated minds 
absolutely brilliant. And I always say, you know, those who are in addiction recovery, they're like the top 10 percentile of intelligence, absolutely functioning on left and right brain and the most creative problem solvers I have ever met. And yet, you know, these are the, the humans who, you know, they have these beautiful potential. They have these incredible spirits. And so it's, again, how do you define intelligence? You know, when you can sit with yourself and look at those things and really start to explore what matters for you, what do you value, what are the things you want to be stimulated in and with, then you can start to bring that forward to your relationships. Okay. Well, thank you guys. This was amazing. I have about 20 people right now that I'm going to force to watch this. (laughs) 